truce in the golf world ended with a reported $600 million deal. Stakes and professional teams are flying off the shelves, and later we're getting geared up for the MLS Cup with former player Eddie Lewis. It's Friday, December 8th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Golf world is in chaos. Joining me now to discuss is Dan Rappaport of Barstool Sports. Welcome, Dan. Yeah, I think chaos is somehow an understatement. It's um, you know, we I think we thought things were, were stabilizing and kind of and kind of go, moving toward a, a merger, so to speak, or or a detente. You know, a future where everyone sort of laid the arms down. Um, but I think what's happened in the past couple of weeks, coupled with the John Rahm move, um, yeah, it's a mess. It's a total mess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into it. So just to catch everyone up, the PGA Tour and Saudi PIF fund, oh, which backs Live Golf, were approaching, are approaching a December 31st deadline to strike a deal on a merger to kind of unite the golf world. Uh, and now we have the news that John Rahm, reigning Masters champion, is uh, headed to Live Golf for a reported $600 million. So yeah, how, how did this news strike you when it hit you? Um, at first it was surprising because just what Ram has said in the past, you know, he said, I think he said last year, my heart is with the PGA tour. He said he doesn't like lives format. Um, he actually used the word fealty. He said, I pledge fealty to the PGA tour. Uh, I remember that last year. Um, but look, you know, $500 million is $500 million. Um, I get it. I get it from that perspective. You know, I think the, the sort of moral argument for not taking the Saudi money, um, really kind of went out the window on June 6th when they came to that framework agreement. So I guess the surprising part to me was that they were still making these type of offers, right? You're thinking that these two sides are negotiating in good faith. You know, they're, they're going to want to come to a deal. Why are they making these offers? Well, it turns out, um, I don't think this deal is going to happen. And I think more and more people are, are sort of coming to that conclusion. So, if you're if you're Yasir and you're you know Yasir Al Rumayan who runs the PIF and runs Live Golf, if you're those guys and and you think a deal's not going to happen, then you go back to doing what you were doing before, which is trying to build your tour. Yeah, my first reaction was like, oh, okay, so Live Golf is is still going to be a thing, I guess. You know, I I know that they had a schedule and they're going to plan to run their 2024 season no matter what, but it felt like it was going to kind of get incorporated into whatever the new deal was and all the players on both sides are going to be able to play together under some big new framework. And yeah, if they're still making these deals, if they're still throwing out hundreds of millions of dollars, then that means that they're planning to be an independent entity and one that is willing to pay whatever it takes to get players from the PGA Tour, which you wouldn't do if the PGA Tour was still going to be a, a um, you know, if it was going to be a partner entity with you. Is this the PIF maybe saying, you know, we can still get your players uh, if you don't strike a deal? Yeah. Any, yeah. Do you, do you think it could be that? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I think it, it puts them in a position of strength, right? If there's no deal, then they have John Rahm, who's one of the five best players in the world. And if, you know, there's still a couple of weeks left and I, you know, I gather there still are negotiations going on. I, you know, I don't think people are super optimistic about it happening, but it puts them in a much stronger spot for those negotiations. But, um, you know, the interesting piece is that, you know, so the guys that made the deal um, for the PJ Tour were were Jimmy Dunn, who uh, is like a kind of a legendary figure in golf, investment banker. He's made a bunch of deals 
uh, Sandler Piper or something, I think is his firm. Uh, just a Wall Street deal maker. And this guy, Ed Hurley, who is the managing director of Wachtell, which is you know, one of the most prestigious law firms in the world. So they were independent directors on the PJ Tour Policy Board who were kind of tapped by Jay Monahan to go make a deal and at least talk to these guys, sit down with them. So they make this deal uh, on June 6th. And, you know, it, it was reported as a merger, but it really was more of a ceasefire. It was more, let's let's stop these lawsuits and let's try to, in good faith, work toward making a deal. There was massive player reaction. Um, pe- the players were pissed, basically, that these two guys who aren't PJ Tour players went and made this deal uh, without the tours, the, the tour being the players, without the, the PJ Tour players' knowledge. So that led to significant governance changes, which gave the players more of a say and more power. Those players have shut out Dunn and Herlihy from the negotiations. They have not negotiated, from what I gather, a single time since June. And so those are the guys that that Yasser made the deal with, right? Those That was the initial, the initial framework agreement. Now it's a different people at the helm who want different things. And there's this acorn group that has a, has a, a bid in that, that part of the board, um, which includes six players really wants to go through. And the PGA tour players as a whole are very concerned about what that might look like. And so from what, you know, from what I'm hearing there, there's a, a large group of players that are, are working frantically to try to to try to stop this deal from going through. So I can't even imagine what, what the scenes are like at PGA Tour headquarters right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very uh, clarifying for me because I felt like, okay, so they had to announce this deal before it was actually a deal. That's awkward, um, but that's what they did. But we, yeah, the piece that I didn't have there was that the people completing the deal weren't the ones who made the deal in the first place and the ones completing the deal don't necessarily want the deal. So um, what's the, what's the alternate path here for the PGA tour? It sounds like they need some kind of cash infusion. If there's going to be more lawsuits and they're going to have to, you know, go up against live with all this money. They need cash in a, in a bad way because they have uh, juiced up the purses for next year. Um, there's like, I think, eight or 12 events that are $20 million purses, which is way up. And, you know, ratings were up this year when they did the elevated events, but they weren't up 2X or whatever it is they're paying these guys. So they they had to to really scramble to come up with the money. Um, and they did that. And they, you know, they kept, by and large, they kept a lot of guys. There obviously were a bunch of defections in the first wave, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, Cameron Smith, but they kept Rom and Rory and, and Justin Tom, you know, all these guys. Um, and they created the player impact program, which was, you know, a hundred million dollars at the end of the year that they gave out to the guys who brought most attention. You know, these were ways to, to keep your biggest stars happy and they need more money to continue to do that in the face of live making all these offers. They need money in a bad way. Um, so, so the way for them to get this money, if it's not for the PIF is from some, from some private equity company. But the problem there, at least this is what the players are, are telling me is that, a private equity company is going to come in and cut fat. And basically what, what they described to me was try to create almost like a live golf in the PGA tour where it's way less players. You know, the PGA tour 
uh, fronts the bill for the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the basically AAA baseball, uh, PGA Tour Latino America, PGA Tour Canada. There's a whole golf ecosystem that the PGA Tour is in charge of, um, but the PGA Tour itself is the only one that makes money. And so a private equity company could come in and say, why are we doing this? Why, why are we funding this, this Corn Ferry Tour? Why are we having all of these events um, that people don't watch? And so I think there's a lot of concern that the PJ tour as it's been for whatever, 50 years of, you know, 150 guys and you, know, you play four rounds of stroke play that that could be going out the window. And the other thing with a private equity investment is it, it's a one-time thing. You know, maybe you get an, you know, some ongoing cash, but you mostly just get a bunch of cash up front and live golf. If it's not going away, makes me wonder what happens longish, medium, long-term, you know, three to five years to the PGA tour. If this is their answer to live golf, that doesn't feel like enough of an answer. Yeah. This is what uh, Dunn was saying when he went in front of the Senate um, was like, we made this deal because they were going to keep poaching our players. And if they keep doing that, then the tour will die basically. So we, we did what we felt was necessary uh, in the face of an opponent that they cannot beat financially. They just can't because they're, because, because the, the Saudis aren't bound by market forces that, you know, they don't need to make money right now. They're, they're willing to just spend, spend, spend and disrupt. And so the initial deal I think was a, a sort of begrudging acknowledgement of we have to get these guys in the fold or we can't win. If, I mean, that sounds accurate. <laughs> and so if they're not getting them in the fold. If this deal does in fact fall through, is, is there a future for the PGA tour? I think there is in some capacity because there are more professional golfers than just 48. Um, but I don't know that there's a future for the PGA tour that has the best golfers in the world playing on it week in and week out. I mean, I, I, I it sounds dramatic to say, I don't, I just don't know. I'm not saying the PGA tour will die, but there is definitely a scenario in which for as long as MBS Mohammed bin Salman wants to fund this thing, that's the other crazy part of this is that if he wakes up tomorrow and says, I'm done with golf, it's, it's probably over. Um, but as long as they're offering guys six, I mean, $600 million, what are we talking about here? Like Tiger Woods in his whole career has made like, you know, including endorsements has made like a, you know, just over a billion. Like John, this is John Rom just getting, it's, it's very inflated. It, it feels like a bubble. It's it's just you know it, it it feels like it's it's spiraling to the point of you know eventually we're just going to have the, the the professional game. You know the top players are just going to be sort of beholden to to the the whims of the of the Saudi Arabian regime. Right, and there's the question of yeah that you brought up. How long does the Saudi regime want to keep doing this? Is it an indefinite thing, or are they you know like let's just you know kind of take over golf and then we don't have to pay $600 million for the top players. I feel like that's one of these unanswered questions where, you know, we'll, we'll see, I guess. Yeah. I think that that's what they're, that's what they're from a money-making perspective. That's what they're trying to do. You know, they, they've, they've probably budgeted X amount of billions and it's going to take a, a, you know, billions to, to basically kill off or unseat one of the major American sports leagues. Um, but I guess they're thinking that once, once they're gone or once we've established primacy, then the money's going to start to flow in. Yeah. There's, there's so many, there's so many moving parts. There's so many unanswered questions. Dan Rappaport. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, No problem. Thanks for having me. One of the most popular sports teams in the world is selling a piece of itself and two other teams are deep in talks to do the same. 
Paris Saint-Germain, current employer of Kylian Mbappe and his $78 million salary, is selling a 12.5% stake to Arctos Partners at a valuation of $4.3 billion. Just doing the math, Arctos is spending around $538 million for their piece of the pie. As teams across the world open the door to private equity, Arctos has amassed quite the portfolio of teams, which includes the Houston Astros, New Jersey Devils, San Francisco Giants, Golden State Warriors, Tampa Bay Lightning, Sacramento Kings, the Aston Martin Formula One team, the LA Dodgers, Utah Jazz, Pittsburgh Penguins, Minnesota Wild, Boston Red Sox, and Joe Gibbs Racing. That's not a comprehensive list, but you get the idea. Meanwhile, New York Islanders co-owner Steve Malkin is reportedly nearing a sale of 10% of his stake in the team at a valuation of $1.75 billion. Not a bad number for an NHL team. The Ottawa Senators were sold earlier this year for just under a billion. And finally, Aries Management and Sportsology Capital Partners are reportedly in talks on a deal to buy the 10% of the Texas Rangers currently owned by Janice Simpson at a team valuation of over $2 billion. If you own a piece of a sports team, there's a private equity firm out there that would like to buy it. A former employee of the Jacksonville Jaguars named Amit Patel is accused of stealing $22 million from the team using the Jaguars' virtual credit card program. What can you buy using a virtual credit card backed by an NFL team? Apparently anything you want. Patel allegedly used the card to buy a condominium, two vehicles, a $95,000 designer watch, cryptocurrency, trips on a private jet, hotel stays, and a number of sports bets, according to The Athletic. How did he have the kind of access to both do all that and to not get caught after the first or second time? Well, according to legal filings, Patel oversaw the team's monthly financial statements and department budgets and was the administrator of the virtual credit card program. This allowed him to cook the books by inflating the costs of some real transactions and inventing plausible sounding purchases that weren't actually made. So the extra expenses were in the budget, but in reality, they're being used to fund Patel's lavish lifestyle. If you don't watch The Watchmen, sometimes The Watchmen buys a watch and a condo and two cars and some tanking crypto coins. And finally, on Wednesday, a bunch of MLB teams tweeted out the same cryptic video. It showed a satellite above planet Earth. The image flickered a little bit like it was taking a second for the signal to come through and then a blank screen with the words, big announcement tomorrow. The Cardinals, Mets, Rangers, Diamondbacks, Astros, Guardians, and Twins all posted this. There are a lot of theories as to what it meant, but one in particular made a lot of sense. If you pay for MLB TV, you can watch any game not available on a local or national broadcast. But because of the way media territory rights work, there are blackouts that make no sense. For instance, if you're in the southern parts of Nevada, including Las Vegas, you can't stream the LA Dodgers, LA Angels, Arizona Diamondbacks, San Francisco Giants, or Oakland A's. People in Iowa cannot stream the Minnesota Twins, Kansas City Royals, St. Louis Cardinals, or Milwaukee Brewers. MLB wants to end this nonsense, and with all the uncertainty going on with regional sports networks, a bunch of teams tweeting an image of a satellite and saying big announcement coming really made it look like blackouts are a thing of the past. But nope, blackouts are still here. And you know what's also here? A Def Leppard and Journey Tour. That's what the satellite video is about. Two rock legends touring MLB stadiums across the country. No word yet on whether these shows will be streamed on MLB TV. Up next, I spoke to former Premier League and MLS player Eddie Lewis. Lewis was a teammate of David Beckham's right after he came to MLS, and so he has seen the league in both that critical moment and the one it's in right now as we approach the final game of the season that will forever be remembered as the one when Lionel Messi came to the US. That conversation is coming up right after this.
I am joined now by former Premier League and MLS player and founder of Toka, Eddie Lewis. Welcome, Eddie. Hi. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for for coming on. Uh, so you played with David Beckham on the LA Galaxy, and now we're seeing something similar with Beckham bringing over Lionel Messi over to MLS. How would you compare those two moments of you know the big star from Europe coming to the U.S.? Yeah, you know, I think uh, while there's certainly um, similarities in the sense that they're both, you know, massive global, you know, footballing figures, um, obviously at the highest level, you can, you know, you, you can have your conversation about the, the players themselves and, and the differences. I think the, the, the difference between the two is probably more than anything kind of a, a time thing. You know, I think David's arrival was... Um, you know, at a younger stage in the league. And, and really, you know, he was kind of the first big, big star. You know, there were, there were some big names, um, certainly, you know, players that were sort of coming to the tail end of their career. But, you know, to take such a, um, you know, a quality player first and foremost and, and one that had, you know, such a high profile at still a, um, you know, a very uh, you know, young time in their career, to, to come over and be a part of the league, I think was, you know, a watershed moment in, in the MLS for sure. Right. It feels like when Beckham came over, there were still questions about, is MLS really going to be a thing? Like, is this just kind of a passing fad? It was so early in the league's history. Whereas now MLS is a thing. It's it's going to continue on. It's well-established, but it's sort of waiting for that, that big moment. Or that big moment is, you know, has maybe arrived with Messi and with the Apple deal and now we're seeing if it can take that fuel and and grow. Uh, now we're in the middle of the MLS playoffs. Do you feel like we're seeing some of those signs of growth right now? Yeah, it does. It does. It definitely feels feels that way, right? You know, and, and to your point, Beckham's arrival um, was really about establishing the league as uh, as one that was you know kind of for real and 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 going to be here for the long term. And I think that's certainly been you know well established and and you know people can debate um the growth and and the trajectory that the that the league has been on but you know at the same time this time around and certainly with with Messi's arrival you know you're now talking about a league um that has had you know incredible investment going into it um it's no longer just about establishing whether you know the MLS is um you know is a formidable league it, it, in my opinion it's really about okay now, how can we leverage somebody like Messi to really influence more, you know, top, you know, particularly young players to come and join the league, um, whether it's, you know, um, uh, because a league that, you know, it's a league they're going to stay in or even if they're going to use it as as a springboard to go on to bigger clubs in, you know, in Europe. Right. And I feel like that's that's kind of the key issue for MLS is. Can they both bring in that top talent as they're establishing themselves, but also have enough money to keep them around? Because, you know, if you can make tens of millions per year in Europe or, you know, maybe a million dollars in MLS, um, you know, it's a pretty clear choice. And I feel like, you know, for that, there's going to have to be you know, the Apple deal obviously helps, but we're going to need to see follow up from from sponsors and from team owners uh, pouring money in. Do you feel like we're seeing those signs of um, of that kind of long term investment from from these other forces? Yeah, and I uh, I think you know that coupled with with the fact that the World Cup's coming, you know, everyone's sort of uh, already kind of making this general bet that 
you know, uh, the impact on the league is, is or the country really is going to be similar to, you know, what we had in 94, which was obviously, a, um, you know, a huge moment for the sport here in this country. And, you know, if that's even, um, you know, half true, you know, I think it becomes a huge, you know, push for the league. Um, more and more investment coming in. You know, one thing that that is unique about the U.S. and certainly I saw it, you know, in my experience is people love America and they love playing in America and living in America and you know raising their kids in America. So I think no matter what, you know, you're always going to have a number of players that that want to stay and may even you know be willing to take um, you know less money to a certain extent to to remain in America. So I don't think the league will have a problem with retention in terms of top talent. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with continuing to sell top players abroad, um, you know, to, to, to some of the biggest clubs. I don't think the MLS is in a race anytime soon to try and challenge, you know, Europe's elite, but at the same time, it has a real opportunity to kind of um, take advantage of the, of the relationship with, you know, kind of uh, Liga MX um, you know, really kind of build a, a closer bond to some of the development that comes out of South America. You know, I think there's there's plenty of space for the MLS to play in. You know, they have the ability to be a little bit more innovative in terms of their approach. You saw that with the with the league this summer um, and the and the tournament. But you know, in my opinion, that's that's probably a better approach rather than just trying to you know chase the traditional format and really kind of leverage the fact that the league is young. Um, it's dynamic. There's a lot of investment and, you know, people are, are more than happy to, um, you know, to come to America. I want to hop over to your, your company, Toka. Uh, so there's two components to it, right? There's the training centers and Toka social, which seems like it's, uh, I haven't been to one, but kind of like a, a top golf, but for, for soccer. So just talk to me a bit about you know, what Toka is and why you started it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and if and if you are ever in London, you know, particularly for Toka Social, and we'll have more here, um, kind of spread around the world shortly. Um, it's definitely it's definitely worth a visit for sure. Uh, but yeah, Toka was born, you know, really out of my own experiences as a as a player. It started, um, you know, really uh, originally. I developed some technology specifically as a um, you know for training and and kind of player development. You know, the now now the company today is is really has two businesses. One is is Toka Soccer, which is you know sort of evolved into a soccer experiences company. We're the largest operator of indoor soccer centers uh, in North America. In our centers, we have programming from you know toddlers all the way through to a, adult leagues with FMB. But they do still revolve around our core technology and differentiator, um, which is Toka Training. Um, which is our, our kind of proprietary development tool. You know, on the other side, and, and through that process with Toka Soccer, we found so much engagement around what we were doing in our studios that um, we then spun off this business, Toka Social, which is really kind of the world's first, you know, entertainment concept, if you will, right? And it's, as you said, uh, a lot of people compare it to the Top Golf. Uh, or to top golf and and call it the top golf of soccer, but essentially, it's very similar technology that we have on the sports side. Um, there's a big 3D screen you sit into. It's a it's a high end bar that you're surrounded by. People are in casual clothes, but the idea is, can we elicit some of these same feelings that you have as a soccer player, whether it's you know a first time finish or hitting a volley, um, you know, or accurately passing to um, you know 
kill zombies or, you know, whatever else is coming at you at the screen um, in not so much a direct uh, soccer way, but really kind of an indirect soccer way, right? So you have these 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 soccer related feelings and moments, um, but it's in a it's a really fun casual atmosphere surrounded by you know great food and drinks and you know for me it's 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 a really nice coming together of of kind of culture and soccer and at the same time it's an experience that just you know hasn't previously existed and I think it's why we've had you know such great um, response and you know I'm 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 really looking forward to to the first center in America. Yeah, very cool. Hey, Lewis, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Yankees fans, you're going to like Juan Soto. Everyone else, hey, at least they're back to being the evil empire again. The bad guys are getting kind of soft there for a minute. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe out there. See you on Monday.